Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 5 of the Lumina Hospice and Palliative Care End-of-Life Podcast. My name is Bob Madar, and today's episode, we're going to spend our time talking with Marcia to discuss what she has learned as a hospice chaplain that can help us answer our essential question. What can the experiences of patients near the end of their lives and the people who care for them and love them tell us about what is important in living and dying? Marcia and I met at the Lumina offices in a small room off the reception area, and I started our discussion by asking her how she came to be a hospice chaplain. I know from a very early urge, I was, uh, age, I was interested in spirituality. I grew up um, outside of New York City in a neighborhood that was largely Jewish or, or Catholic, and I was neither of those. And so that always made me interested in other people's religions mm-hmm, and, and their mm-hmm. spirituality and, and finding out more about those things. So it very, I, I had a great sense of a spiritual sense. I became a high school teacher. That was my career. But then after raising a family, I was kind of looking around and started taking more classes in pastoral care and in spiritual direction and just to learn more about how to care for people. I've always been very involved in a church community. Mm-hmm. And then I was in Corvallis and had a couple of jobs with churches in Corvallis as a pastor. And then, um, you know, it's just kind of thinking, I wonder if there's a place for me at hospice. And basically, mm. you know, this is before Facebook or things were online. I walked in the door and told the director of hospice, Lucy, uh, this is what I can do. Mm-hmm. Is there a place mm-hmm. for me here? And she said, as a matter of fact, there is. We're, you know, spirituality is an essential part of hospice care. And as we're growing, we need we need another chaplain here. Mm-hmm. And so I applied for the job and I got it. So oh, I'd have to say I have a sense of spirituality. I don't know that I was that interested in the end of life when I came to work for hospice. Mm-hmm. It was more a way of working with people's spirituality. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you grow and have skills then at the end, in end of life care. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, I wouldn't be honest if I said I had a driving um, passion to work in hospice care particularly. Just so kind of dealing with people in general. Dealing with people in general, the, the spiritual aspect yes. of things, those were the things that you really wanted to do. And then mm-hmm. hospice, it sounds to me, was kind of the... Became venue, an avenue for an that avenue to happen. for you to do that. Yes. Okay. So maybe talk just a little bit about the role of the chaplain with, mm-hmm. you know, with the dying, with the people mm-hmm. that you're with. What, what, what are the fundamental goals of your work? Uh, we walk a fine line in hospice because we don't provide, well, we, we are not providing religious care. We sometimes do. I shouldn't say we don't provide it, but we we don't represent any religious denomination. We provide spiritual care. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that means if a person has religious traditions, if they would like us to pray with them or uh, sing hymns, we actually do a lot of singing. (laughs) You know, just a lot of people enjoy uh, singing some of the old hymns that they're not hearing in their churches that much much anymore. You know, and that's, you know, there's certain favorites and and scriptures. And so we will do traditional things with people. But then also there's the other side that um, of what, you know, again, what gives meaning to your life? Mm -hmm. Is there any unfinished business? You know, is there a son you'd really like to hear from that you haven't heard from in a long time? You know, what, what are the things that, what are your goals right now? You know, it maybe your goal is just, you know, I would like to see that that great grandson born mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. someone graduate. Mm-hmm. So the goals become smaller or, you know, more short term. But people still at the end of their lives, maybe they want to see the, the daffodils come up you know, or, or eat a tomato. One of the things that is I'm hearing in some ways is is that part of your role is to provide clarity 
help people develop clarity, I guess would be a better way to say it, of what their desires and end goals are. Mm -hmm. Yes, very definitely. So what tools do you employ when you're working with them? It sounds one for sure is just empathetic listening, if mm -hmm. I have that right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, I um, I try to find out what the person's tools are, you know, what, you know, what, they, what has helped them in the past. Um, you know, if the person is religious, perhaps they would like to, um, you know, hear me recite some psalms or sing hymns, or we can do that together, um, or bring inspirational readings. I have quite a few um, essays that I bring about, oh, just in incidents in life that, um, you know, have, have impact, um, that are, are, you know, usually, you know, maybe 15 minute stories, mm -hmm. somebody like Leo Biscaglia or something, you read stories about their lives and then that can stimulate some discussion or just pure enjoyment about something that that's inspiring to people. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I bring materials like that um, to people. But I, again, I think the primary thing that gives, that I use is life review, is getting the person to talk about, you know, uh, we have, again, we're going back to that whole veterans piece, uh, the people that came after the war. I mean, there are stories that people will tell you of their time in the war. You know, one gentleman who was at Okinawa, you know, and could tell about it. And actually, he was left because he, he was presumed to be dead. Oh, he was bleeding so much, wow. you know, and then he went to and rehabbed in New Zealand. But, um, you know, what he saw was just just amazing. But going back to those stories were important for him. Mm -hmm. You know, important to tell them again, mm -hmm. you know, to people. So that or, or someone's going back and talking about their teaching career or their time with their grandchildren or the time they were a young woman in New York City, um, you know, trying to be a, a secretary and have a career or, you mm -hmm. know, so it's um, life review is really key um, for most people. Just, but then again, trying to find out what it is that has helped them in the past, you know, what has, has given them strength and then finding resources interesting stories. Some people want to talk politics. We've had people tell us, I don't want any staff that are Republicans, or I don't want any staff that are Democrats. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and I, I would assume as we get closer to this election, we're going to hear more of that. You know, don't send me any Democrats. <laughs> you know? <laughs> if they mention... Yeah. <laughs> we try to stay very neutral in that regard. And I've heard things that I definitely disagree with, but I just smile and receive that information <laughs> and and here's something that I, i've heard loud and clear on both from you and then uh, the other folks that i've talked to here at hospice one of the things that that it seems to me that is an ethos of the group so far is that it's really tailored to the patient and you may have ideas of what the good death looks like mm -hmm. and how one might proceed and certainly ideas of your own personal death and what you want. But what I hear pretty clearly from everybody is we do not let and we take good strong steps to make sure that our preconceived notions don't color our interacting with the patients. Right. We're really looking at the patient as a person and and we craft our interventions based on what our best understanding of mm -hmm. their desires and their needs are. Is that? Very true. As we talked, it became clear to me that Marsha had a wealth of knowledge, understanding, and wisdom gained from working with hospice patients and their families. And I asked her if she would share some of what she had learned. 
I just like to open it up and just, you know, have you speak about what really comes from your heart hmm. and and what you've learned and what 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 are the you know if you had 15 minutes to uh, be in a elevator with somebody or some situation <laughs> with somebody and they said so what have you learned from Hosman oh. you know let's have it what <laughs> yeah um i guess i've learned to be a, a good listener and also not to be surprised by anything <laughs> you know there is um people, the way people appear and the way they really are. I mean, we, in the hospice, we serve the most well-to-do people in our community and we serve people who have been on the streets. Um, I've had people who we've found housing for, you know, who don't want to wear any clothing. You know, they just, you know, that's like, they, you know, and and want, I mean, just people with mental issues, um, people that are, um, the best educated in the community, the least educated. And so it's it all, all opens your eyes to things outside your normal, uh, what, what you're comfortable with in your normal everyday life. But also the appreciation of each person's needing to find some sense of meaning in their lives and some sense of purpose. And and that, that just covers, it. it's just totally diverse. Um, as a high school teacher, I loved it trying to figure out, okay, how can I get to this? How can I reach this kid? And the same thing is in hospice, you've got to establish a rapport quickly because you don't have that much time. So that's what I, I bring everything that probably I've ever learned in my life to hospice because I never know when I'm going to to need this. Um, I have a son that I think you know, who, uh, yes. I sure do. Who, um, you know, he's a nuclear engineer. Uh, we had a patient on hospice who all we knew about, well, from his daughter, I mean, we knew a lot about him, but he would not communicate with us. He was in a facility, kept his face to the wall, didn't want to talk to anybody. Knew from his daughter that he had um, built um, nuclear power plants after the war in Europe and in, in England and Japan. So I happened to know a lot about nuclear power because I was reading John books at the third grade level <laughs> about nuclear energy because he was interested in it as a kid. So, and then gradually knowing about um, some of the new, um, some of the new things in terms of nuclear power plants and how they're being built with gravitational safety and all these sort of things. So I just went in there and started babbling about nuclear power to this man. You know, I, of course I've introduced myself and then began discussing nuclear power with him. And he turned his head, you know, and he started talking and we were able to develop a rapport. Or I know about opera, a lady who was, um, I went into her home, very comfortable home. Uh, She'd had a stroke, was not able to communicate facially or using any movements at all. Her her daughter had left a, a scrapbook. So I started looking at the scrapbook with her. Well, she had gone to USC, and I noticed there was a a recital that she had been in her senior year. And she had sung a very difficult, you know, aria by Puccini. (laughs) So, you know, I looked at that and then kind of pointed to it. So the next time I, I brought that aria to her and played it for her, you know, and she could move her eyes. And she got then so she could point to what she wanted to hear. And then she did develop from her stroke. She was able to speak again. But 
you know, just because, oh, so you have, you know, something about opera, you know, something about beer, you know, something, you never know when these things in your life are going to be able to, you know, help a person establish mm-hmm. a rapport. So then you can move from that to the, the questions of meaning and purpose in life. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think that's what, you know, just a question of how can I reach this person? What's going to work? Is it going to be singing, you know, about Palisades Amusement Park? I, um, I, when I was growing up on Long Island, their Palisades Amusement Park was in New Jersey. And they wanted all these New Yorkers to come over to Palisades Amusement Park. So there was a song, Palisades has the rides, Palisades has the fun, come on over. So I met this couple who were from Long Island. And I said, oh, do you remember those jingles on the radio about Palisades Amusement Park? I began to sing it and they began to cry. And they had gone on their first date to Palisades Amusement Park. You know, so... um, you know, it just, that's that's one of the joys for me is like, okay, you know, what I know a little bit about this person, how you know, go through my Rolodex and try to figure out some way to um, establish a rapport with me. So that's that's why I lo- it's why I love teaching. It's why I love the hospice work that I do. That sounds like an enormously creative act to me, mm-hmm. uh, because you you know you're, you're you're sensitive to information that's coming in. You're racking your going through the Rolodex in your head, thinking. What is it that I, you know, can use? You come upon it, then you skillfully introduce it, and then follow the wave from there, mm-hmm. in a way. And let the person go. And let the person go. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, like, I really don't know anything about NASCAR, but I knew that was very important to this person that I was visiting. So I got familiar, and I would look in the newspaper and bring things in about NASCAR, and that would be kind of like the way we would start our conversations, and then we'd go onto other you know, topics. That, that's a lot like teaching too, because a lot of times if you can find a kernel or a nugget like that that allows you to build a rapport with a student, that gives you the entry po- entry right. point then to go deeper and yeah. do other things. Yeah. You know, very, very So true, that's right? that's yeah. a great similarity. <laughs> so you mentioned something earlier um, that that I just interested in and and I hadn't even thought of that but you're absolutely right I mean I, sometimes I wonder if my brain works but um, <laughs> the thing that's so interesting to me is that you experience all classes of people and using that I don't like the term class but it mm-hmm. is descriptive and so you know all the way from homeless to people that live in two three four million dollar homes mm-hmm. Are there any similarities that you see with those folks across that that huge spectrum of experience? I, I think there's more similarities and differences at you, the end at the end of life. I, could you, elaborate you know, because on this all of us are, you know, it's like we come into the world naked, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, and right. and as and all of us come in the way and all of us go out the way. There's still the same questions about, you know, has my life had meaning? Has it had purpose? Um, we do have a lot, many, not many people, but we, we have certain numbers of people who have addictions. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's without class. Mm-hmm. You know, um, mm-hmm. we find out things about prominent members in the community that, of course, we're confidential about, but might be surprising to us as individuals. Um, but they're, yeah, I mean, regardless, there's family dysfunction. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Across things, so I, I think there's more similarities in terms of families. I mean, people, of course, have more comforts and privileges sometimes. Um, in terms of educational levels, uh, you know, the the PhD from OSU 
still might have the same qualms about the end of life as the person who's not gone through an eighth grade education. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's one of those times when there's, you know, everybody, you know, you're in a room with everyone who's in Alcoholics Anonymous. You're in the room with everybody who has cancer. It's a great, great equalizer. Great equalizer. That's really, a, I think, a really interesting point. So that in the final, you know, sort of analysis in a way, the external trappings of education, wealth, position, or lack of education, lack of wealth, position, it sounds as though they matter less mm-hmm. than sort of the fundamental humanity of the people you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. And that all of us, regardless of the merit badges or mm-hmm. whatever we paste on our bodies, um, are less important in a way when it's time to pass. Mm-hmm. And so if those become less important, then what I'm hearing from you is some of the, the commonalities are Did my life have meaning? Mm-hmm. Did I do what I thought I should? Am I, am I, can I look back at my life and say, yes, you know, I've done, I've done good things for people. Is that, is that something that comes mm-hmm. up for people a lot? Mm-hmm. But also, and then I just, the other thing is the the family relationships, you know, I mean, not only did my life have meaning, but you know, how are my, how are my are my family relationships in good order? Mm-hmm. Of course, we have some people who have no family too. But but right, right. but for the majority of people, it is you know they want to know that things are right with their family. Mm-hmm. They're not even worried sometimes about dying. I want to make sure my husband's okay after I go. You know, it's just remarkable. No, no, don't worry about me. Just I want to make sure that Stan's so okay. Said, is exactly what my dad yeah, said. Yeah. Oh yeah, my dad was going to have to go in for open-heart surgery um, because he had rheumatic fever when he was a kid and that they wanted to replace his heart valves. Well, he's 81. Mm -hmm. And we're talking, and I said, Dad, you know, 81, man, open-heart surgery, that's a lot. And and he said, well, I have to do it. I said, why? And he says, because i got to stay alive, take care of your mom. Mm -hmm. And he was absolutely, and we had nothing. I mean, he was, you know, and we talked. And I said, you know, you're either going to open your chest, you're going to be, all this stuff. And he said, well, yeah, but... But your mom has Parkinson's disease, and I have to be here for her. And it was such an interesting thing, and it sounds as though that's something that mm-hmm. you see quite oh, often. Yeah. You know, or they make sure, I mean, their major concern, I have one woman who will be 100 wow. <laughs> in another another month. And uh, her major concern is for her son, you know, that he's going to be all right when I'm gone. That is just really fascinating to me. Of course, his son's older than I am. I, that was kind of a reorientation, you know. I'd say, okay, this woman has two sons, blah, blah. And it's like, oh, the sons are older than me. I'm thinking of, you know, That's children. Right. But, but that, that took a while for me to realize when I was looking, um, you know, that, oh, I'm talking to someone on the phone who's, you know, my age or older. You're just making me feel like a spring chicken. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, just, That's really Sons, good. I'm thinking, hmm. That's right. Well, you know, we're just about toward the tail end of our time. Um, so yeah, is there anything, you know, that you really would like me to capture um, toward the end? Any messages, anything that just... Well, this is just the personal messages that, you know, I have, I have loved this work. I've found it inspiring. It can be frustrating. It can be hard, very hard at times, tiring. But um, it is also just very fulfilling. People allow you the privilege of coming into their lives at the end of their lives and... 
you try to use the tools you have to help them have the best quality toward the end of life. Mm-hmm. And um, that's the real gift. What could be more? What could be more rewarding in a way than mm-hmm. that? I think is to give somebody a good death and to help them. But and this is the thing I think is so interesting to me that I appreciate so much is it's a good death on their terms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really really. Yeah, we have to go. You know, you and sometimes as a couple, you know, as, as a group, we work in teams, and it's like, you know, if only, if only, but it's their choices. In closing, what have we learned from Marsha about what her work as a hospice chaplain has taught her about what is important in living and dying? It seems to me there are three things that I've taken away from this conversation. The first is that it may be that the external trappings of education, wealth, position, etc. are far less important at the end of life than meaning, purpose, and family relationships. Two, truly listening to someone and looking for things you have in common with them is a powerful tool in building relationships, particularly in a time of difficulty and distress. And three, Accepting the fact that you are dying rather than fighting it to the last moment may be a crucial component of having a good death. Thank you for listening to Marcia, and I hope you will come back for episode six when we will have a conversation with Dr. David Groob, a member of the Lumina Hospice and Palliative Care Board of Directors. For more information, visit luminahospice.org. Mm-hmm.